Okay. All right, let's get started. Our goal, since this is the last time, this will be my last formal instruction session with you guys. My goal is to take, I mean, we really need to focus on King, but we will get to Malcolm X. Um, but I'm, I'm hoping to have us look at two principal documents for King. My guess is, the, being the way I am, I'll probably have us refer to some other things just as, uh, as a matter of course. But we're going to look at the letter from Birmingham jail and the I Have a Dream speech in that order. And then uh, we'll probably have about 20 to 30, uh, probably 30 minutes on Malcolm X. So let's see if we can take it to 12 o'clock on King and then 12 to 12.30 on X. Try to be all aware of that and don't let me go past 12-ish on King. Um, the reason for that being, of course, is that King is the uh, third pillar that supports this academy. The Declaration of Independence slash Constitution for the first leg, Gettysburg Address, and essentially Lincoln's statesmanship for the second leg, and then the culmination of the civil rights, or the culmination of, of the promise, as it were, of all men created equal uh, being secured in practice, that culmination finding itself in the modern civil rights movement that found its legs uh, with uh, Martin Luther King in his I Have a Dream speech. Uh, the I Have a Dream speech. Uh, how many of you guys got to at least at some point this week to go up to Lincoln Memorial? Okay, now I want to watch this. How many of you guys saw the step that had Martin Luther King, I Have a Dream? Ah, did you guys know to look for it or did you just happen upon it? Yeah. If you're not looking for it, you will not see it. It's very hard to see and usually there's a bunch of kids standing on it. I mean, you can stand on it, that's fine, but it is so unremarkable. Uh, I'm on the Lincoln, uh, I'm one of a million historians and professors, uh, a professor of political science, very good. I can't read it even in there. Um, I, I'm one of these, I and uh, Alan Gelser are, are members of the scholarly advisory committee to the Abraham Lincoln Bicentennial Commission. They're going to come out with pan, a new penny and a bunch of programs, especially for K-12 through schools uh, in 2008 and especially 2009 as we commemorate the bicentennial of Lincoln's birth. Um, I believe one of the things that's being scheduled as well is kind of a re-commemoration of uh, or rededication of the Lincoln Memorial. But I would love for them to do something more about that place where the podium was that Martin Luther King uh, spoke from rather than just this fairly, you know, fairly indescript etching on the step. They should make that step a different color or do something. Now, I also know that uh, his fraternity, uh, Alpha Phi Alpha, or one of those, I'm not a big Greek guy, but one of uh, uh, his fraternity is raising money for a Martin Luther King memorial that will be between the Lincoln Memorial and the Jefferson Memorial. They already have a site set apart, uh, but I believe, you know, Congress is really, uh, they don't like to continue to add monuments. There's a whole commission that allowed the World War II one, for example, and it was almost like, this was the last one. Uh, the King one has permission, but they only have a certain amount of time where they're being allows, allowed to raise money to erect that monument. And I'm not sure what the progress of that is. So that once you have that, then I guess in a way you don't need this thing on the Lincoln Memorial steps. But I would love it that every person who comes to visit the Lincoln Memorial has to remind themselves of its fulfillment, as it were, in the work of Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement of the 20th century more generally. Well, that speech was delivered August 28, 19...
63. Uh, a day after Du Bois died uh, in Ghana, in fact, his death was announced on the 28th at that march. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was introduced by uh, the man who actually thought of a march on Washington in 1941 or 42, I forget what it was, but in the early 1940s, uh, the uh, head or the president of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, um, whose name just escapes me, I'm, thank you, A. Philip Randolph, that great booming voice. I mean, he was the one who introduced Martin Luther King, the moral leader of our nation, Dr. Martin Luther King. He introduced King uh, that day. But that speech, very short speech, only took 16 minutes to deliver, uh, was delivered after a much lengthier essay that King wrote earlier in that year, in April of 1963, and that was the letter from a Birmingham jail. Uh, let's look at the letter from a Birmingham jail, and if in your binders you can quickly find the letter that the clergyman wrote to King in a public advertisement telling him not to meddle in the affairs of Birmingham, Alabama. If you can get to that letter as well. Thank you. If any of you are interested in more detail about this letter from a Birmingham jail, there was a book written in 2002 uh, by a guy named S. Jonathan Bass. It's called Blessed Are the Peacemakers, and it gives a complete account or a fairly com comprehensive account of the genesis of this so, you know, letter from a Birmingham jail. It also gives, uh, uh, it devotes chapters to all of the clergymen who had complained to King and what happened in their lives after the letter from Birmingham jail. To what extent, if at all, any of them were actually involved in the civil rights movement, what their congregations thought of their position before and after the letter from Birmingham jail. So if anybody's interested in, in details about that and how even... Uh, King and his uh, colleagues were strategic about writing the letter, getting it published, drawing uh, attention to uh, the cause. Uh, that's a good book. S. Jonathan Bass, Blessed Are the Peacemakers, out of uh, LSU Press, 2002. Um, quickly, uh, what were their complaints about King? What's wrong with King, uh, you know, uh, protesting for justice down in uh, Alabama? Okay, outsider, one, he's meddling, he's sticking his nose in where it doesn't belong, he's an outsider, especially in the South, that's a historically big deal that you don't uh, uh, want people coming in from outside to solve their problems. What else? Timing. Timing, okay. Why, what's, why was timing an issue? What had just happened uh, fairly recently? There was an election where not an anti-segregation, but shall we say a moderate segregationist administration was voted in and uh, Bull Connor's administration was voted out. Now, the funny thing about it, of course, is it was a contested election. So what, they would, ha what would happen is, is Bull Connor and his people would meet claiming to be the legitimate rulers uh, of the city council. They would do, have their meetings, and when they were done, they'd leave, and then the other group would come in <laughs> and meet. And so the argument, of course, here is that, look, we're working on it. We're, we're, we're going to have a new administration here, uh, and your grievances will be dealt with in a fair manner. Uh, then. So uh, wait, and, and we'll take care of this. So timing, meddling. Okay, wow. Now this one is, is a real touchy one for King. King is going to answer these almost seriatim, one after the other. Uh, the fact that, sure, you may claim that what you are doing is nonviolent, doesn't require any force, but if it provokes violence, 
you are responsible. Okay? Even if what you are doing itself isn't a violent thing, if what you are doing produces or incites violence, you should be held responsible for it. King's going to take issue with that. What else? Anything else in that letter? Okay, so, so not so much, a, so sort of li linked to the timing question, okay? Any other complaints about uh, King's actions and his group's actions down there? Well, I don't know if it was mentioned or not, but isn't he kind of concerned about the area in which it's being done? The what? The area. Say more. Well, he, he's in here talking about accomplished by citizens in our own metropolitan area and not so much going into the deep south where Okay, so again, is this a question of timing? Uh, that may it may not be right. Some places are better than other places. Okay. In the place that it shouldn't be done in the streets, it should be done in the courts. All right. Okay, remember Thurgood. Good, Thurgood Marshall um, in public would defend King, but privately thought King was a rabble rouser. Remember, remember, it's hard for your students to recognize that that the very nature of protest movements are a benign thing. Prior, I would argue that prior to the modern civil rights movement, um, protests like that were seen as the equivalent of mobs. Um, they even predicted that the March on Washington, there's no way, I mean, they weren't expecting a quarter million people, but even 25, 50,000, they did not believe you could have that many people integrated, white and black, get together without some kind of violence breaking out. Uh, so the, prior to the civil rights movement, the, the idea of mass protests that's what rabble-rousers, troublemakers, uh, lower-class people did. One of the achievements of the Civil Rights Movement was the, the, the fact that they were able to solicit so many middle-class, respectable, right, law-abiding people to participate. Um, that was not the convention prior to that time. And so in a way, the King and the Civil Rights Movement kind of rehabilitated the notion, or at least gave, gave a good name to mass protest. Okay. Anything else before we get to uh, the actual letter? We can't. I won't be able to hit uh, uh, all of it because it's a long uh, essay. Uh, but I want to get to as much of it as we can before we move to the "I Have a Dream" speech. Anything else? Well, again, I want us to make uh, the argument that these guys make as strongly as we can before we see if uh, King can knock it down. Nothing else here. All right. Let's move then to uh, the "I Have a Dream" book to the letter from Birmingham Jail, which begins on page 83. It's addressed to my dear fellow clergymen. So the first thing King does, of course, is identify himself as a man of the cloth. You've got a preacher talking to preachers. Uh, these preachers are somewhat interdenominational. You have Catholic, Protestant, and Rabbi, Jewish, there. And King, he's got a PhD. <laughs> he's got his uh, uh, seminary degree. This is a guy who knows not only his philosophy, but his theology, and he pulls out all the stops in this essay. He is going to make arguments, employ rhetorical means 
that they should be able to identify with uh, and, and relate to. Uh, he does it in a number of ways. I want to make sure that we pick this up uh, as we go along here. Um, how does he answer to the meddling charge? That he's, the, he's butting in where he's not wanted. He was invited. Mm -hmm. now, it turns out he's not just deciding to go wherever he wants to go. In fact, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the SCLC, has branches uh, all over the eastern seaboard, and one of those is in Alabama. Uh, and so he has every right to be there, right? Uh, what else on the meddlesome charge? Okay, good. All right, so on 85, right? Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Last line there. Anyone who lives in the United States can never be considered an outsider anywhere in this country. I mean, a short, shorthand version is, well, I thought this was a free nation. Yeah, free country. Uh, this is about as American as it gets. <laughs> uh, he's almost surprised that he has to, to respond to this charge. Uh, but look at what he does prior to that on the bottom of the, the previous page. He points out certain things that they ought to know as members of the cloth, right? Beyond this, I am in Birmingham because injustice is here, just as the 8th century prophets. Who might that resonate with? <laughs> the rabbi and <laughs> the rest of the, the clergymen, because they believe in the Old Testament as well. Prophets left their little villages, carried their, thus saith the Lord, their prophecies, far beyond the boundaries of their hometowns. Oh, you Protestant guys think I'm leaving you out? Just as the Apostle Paul <laughs> left his little village of Tarsus, carried the gospel of Jesus Christ to practically every hamlet and city of the Greco-Roman world. So, in other words, I'm just doing what all men of the cloth that you guys are well aware of have done, which is we don't just preach the word in our home. We go out where the word needs to be preached. So if there's injustice somewhere... I'm going to be the bearer of justice there. What? Where else should I bear justice? Right? The physician goes where the sick are. Okay? Uh, nothing new there. Okay. Um, how is he going to uh, defend his campaign for nonviolence? Let's move a little along in terms, uh, in terms of the question of strategy. Uh, what does he point out about how they do what they do? Uh, a little more sophisticated than uh, the clergymen understand it to be. Well, he points out that they say, they say not bad things, but they condemn him for being there doing something, but they don't say anything about the bad things going on while that, that, that is already there. Okay, so for starters, he's like, boy, you're so concerned about the possible you know, uh, provocation that will, 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 will provoke, but where's the concern in your letter for the very injustices that are creating these, yeah, that are taking place... Uh, how come uh, no solicitude for them? Go ahead. Well, he says, you know, they haven't really left us any other choice. We have tried a lot of things. So ah, so he actually spells out that protest is not the first thing we do. Not only is it not the first step, it's not the second one. But I like the way he gives, like, specific phases. Yes. Uh, you know, to make it look like I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, good. And, he, and he's enlightening them. Uh, educating them about this. Go ahead. I was just going to say Marie's point that he talks about there's the four basic steps. What are, what are the four steps? Collection of the facts to determine whether injustices exist, negotiation, self-purification, and direct action. All right, let's look at those. First, fact-finding. 
Somebody says, injustice is here. All right, we're going to send tons of people down there. No. The first thing they do is just, let's see. Let's, get it, get, let's check out the lay of the land here and see really what the nature of the injustices are, if they are there. Once they do that, next step? Negotiation. Negotiation. Interesting. They don't make a big public to-do about it. They don't try to stir anything up. Uh, anything up. They talk to the parties that be and say, look, you guys are the authorities here. This is the situation. This is how we understand it. Can we come to terms? Right? We do negotiate. We do, do uh, engage in what we say today, right? Diplomacy first, right? It's precisely what we've done. Been there and definitely have done that, right? Time and again. And guess what we have found many a time when we have negotiated? We have negotiated in good faith and they have not. Promises have been made to us time and again, not just in Birmingham, but in many other places where we've been pointing out injustices, and guess what they do? Behind closed doors, they say, yeah, we'll take down the signs, colored only, da-da-da-da-da, and we turn around, nothing is done, right? It's a shell game, right? Uh, they've been playing this game for us, with us for a long time. We're not going to do it. We've, we've negotiated in good faith, but if we can't have confidence that they're going to stick to their terms, we now protest. Notice what has to happen first, before they protest. Interesting. Before before they get into the thick of it, they have to get ready. And if you have your, uh, ooh, where is it? This, do you have this uh, Why We Can't Wait yeah. book? Turn to the commitment card page. I always point this out to my students. This is page 50 to 52, actually page 51. Let's look at this. King recognizes that nonviolent protest is not an easy thing to do. Not everybody can do it. In fact, it's very difficult to do what it requires of you, physically, mentally, spiritually. Whew! It's a lot. What does he say here? I pledge myself, my person and body, to the nonviolent movement, and therefore I will keep the following Ten Commandments. Number one. Now notice, you don't have to be a Christian to do this. He says, I will meditate daily on the teachings and life of Jesus. You know, Gandhi did that. A number of people who weren't Christian did that. Somehow or another, they're going to learn about what Jesus taught and how he lived. Somehow, doing that will enable them to engage in this action. It's going to equip them to do it. Second, remember that the nonviolent movement in Birmingham seeks justice and reconciliation, not victory. What's the difference between those two? If you were just seeking victory, what would you be seeking? What would you want in Birmingham? Okay, so uh, what was that? Someone said something over here? War. War? Oh, victory? What do you mean, war? Okay, so the kind of victory would be one where there is the, van the, the, the victor and the vanquished, right? Why doesn't King want someone in his movement who thinks of this as a friend enemy, us versus them kind of thing? Why would that be actually subversive of their aim? Okay. Anything that they gain cannot have seen as a loss for the white. All right. Somehow or another, King wants a change to take place where everybody sees it as a win-win situation. Even those who have to make the changes have to see that those changes are to their benefit, not to their uh, ill. Right. Victory does not promote equality. Okay. It, it, the, the, the typical sense of victory right. is that we have gained something at the expense of somebody else. So it could pr produce a backlash of some sort. 
Think of, oh, go ahead. I was just say, it's almost like redeeming also America. So in the sense, Redeeming is a spiritual term. Tell me how, what are we talking about here? Ah, okay, so there's a political analog, a political form of salvation or redemption. Okay, good. And somewhere in this letter to Birmingham jail, he says that he wants, his goal is that he will get, um, he will show this white settlers the wrong of what they are doing, and from there, they will repent, and then there will be reconciliation. Yeah, he really is shooting for not just a change in law or the administration of law. He is doing the hard work, or at least... It's, it's attempting to do the hard work of changing hearts. Right? Think about the name of the group that engaged in the bus boycott in Montgomery. It was not the NIA, the Negro Improvement Association. It was what? Montgomery, Montgomery Improvement Association. The claim was, if we are successful in this boycott, who wins? Every citizen of Montgomery. Every Montgomery citizen will be improved as a result of our association's work. The victory we achieve has to be a victory that all can buy into. King is searching for the beloved community. That's that kind of catchphrase that was used at the time. Um, we don't have time to look at the essay, but if you're interested in that, that's the, the, the essay, The Power of Nonviolence. We're not going to look at that, but that was written in the in 57, and it's in that essay, among other places, but it's in that essay where he explains about, he explains what he means by the beloved community and why the means he has chosen are most conducive of the ends. You can't use violence to get to a nonviolent result. That's what dictated civil disobedience for King. That's what dictated the measures that they adopted. He says, we have to create in the end not just changed laws, but changed lives. We have to create community, something held in common. And so the way that we attack it has to be seen, or has to be uh, chosen consistent with its objective. If we, want, if we win at the end of the day, we just don't, it's not just a case of tolerating one another. It's a case of befriending one another. We want to live at peace with our neighbors. We don't want our neighbors to tolerate us. We want to love them in a way that they will uh, see us as fellow citizens and not just uh, victors. Go ahead. Well, and the, uh, one thing that um, points out how he feels about why violence is not right, and I think it's a good way to explain to uh, students, is he believes violence brings about bitterness. Mm -hmm. And so it, takes, it tears down the community. And, and yes. It, it causes resentment versus working together. Right. And boy, I mean, bitterness is tough to uproot once it gets settled in there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He, again, he's, uh, what he's asking for is a pretty tall order, <coughs> what he's shooting for. But if community is your goal, you can't engage in divisive measures to produce it. Got to be consistent. Okay. Third, walk and talk in the manner of love for God is love. He defines love in that essay I mentioned earlier as agape, Greek term, uh, for a form of action that's for the good of the recipient. You, it's, there's nothing self-interested about it. You do what's good for them precisely because it's good for them. It's a form of the golden rule. Right? Um, four, pray daily to be used by God in order that all men might be free. Okay. He thinks we as human beings are incapable of accomplishing this objective. It is only possible 
if we are aligning ourselves with what God is doing in the world. King, I mean, no surprise that a preacher would say something like this. Go ahead. Oh yeah, the, to the Christians that the, the Christian pastors, rabbis don't have it. Yeah. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. It's a self-sacrificing yeah, form of love, and we're going to see. That's right. King it makes no bones about this. Remember that that that, that uh, statement? I think it was um, when they. Uh, at the end of the, the march from Selma, he said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Right? Uh, King's concept here is that if the civil rights movement is to succeed, it's precisely because we have God helping us. Okay? Uh, can I convert somebody else's heart? Mm-mm. That's the work of that person's maker. So he really thinks the only way we'll be successful is if we've enlisted uh, the help of, uh, of our maker. But that love implies their salvation. The other side is... Yeah, the question becomes, what is the nature of that salvation? For King, of course, because it's a public movement, it's not religious conversion, although, to be sure, he wouldn't mind that. <laughs> but, but for him... Go ahead. For us and them on the other side. In other words, those who stand against us. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Five, sacrifice personal wishes in order that all men might be free. Yeah, this is going to be a very inconvenient thing. Actually, even an expensive thing. There will be other things you'd rather be doing, and you're going to have to give those up to see the, the importance of this. Six, observe with both friend and foe the ordinary rules of courtesy, because, by the way, they won't be receiving those uh, actions from uh, some elements that they'll run into. Seven, seek to perform regular service for others and for the world. Wow, in other words, unless you make it a habit... Unless you make this a way of life for yourself, participating in the civil rights movement is going to be too difficult for you. It will demand too much of you just to try to wing it by showing up some morning. Unless you've made that, or at least begun to make this a part, kind of the warp and woof of your own existence, individually and and communally, you're going to be a mess out there. You're going to react, speak in ways that will be inconsistent with the nonviolent protests that we are engaged in. Eight, refrain from the violence of fist, tongue, or heart. Woo, right out of the Sermon on the Mount. Yikes. Right? Me, King makes no bones about the demands that this makes upon someone. In other words, hitting someone who hits you seems now to look like a very easy thing to do in comparison to what King is asking them to do. Fist, what you do physically. Tongue, what you say in reaction to what others are saying about you and to you, and the hardest one, right? Where do the fist and tongue begin? Inside. Yo. Nine, strive to be in good spiritual and bodily health. Woo! Okay. Ten, follow the directions of the movement and of the captain of a demonstration. A very tall order that he calls upon them uh, to fulfill. So, fact-finding, negotiation, preparation ourselves, then protest. How does this help him make the case uh, in response to the clergyman to know that they've undergone this multi-phase, multi-step process, and in particular the personal preparation that has been done? How does it help him make his case for the nonviolent protest movement in Birmingham? 
Okay, it's not rash. It's not a mere reaction. Not just a reflex. Okay, so we've pursued other alternatives, other avenues. Good. Anything else? It's prudent. Prudent? Yeah. <laughs> it's prudent. The wise thing in a given situation, in other words, they've considered it, they've measured it. Okay. And, and what is less likely to occur? Remember, remember the, 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 the claim was that they will provoke a violent response. King is saying, we're doing everything we can so that the things we are thinking, saying, and doing don't give cause to somebody else to act differently. If we're courteous, does that help us lead to a situation where they could respond, even if they disagree with us, they might respond with courtesy? Yeah, so we're doing everything we can to make sure they don't respond in a way that's contrary to a peaceful, orderly, civil uh, uh, process. All right, so he, in the next couple of pages, he takes you through those four phases. This is what we've done. This is what we've done. This is what we've done. This is what we're now doing. Okay? This reveals that we did not move irresponsibly into direct action. It was the culmination of a series of events and actions and preparations that we undertook uh, uh, to, to get to this place. Okay? It says at the bottom of 86, you were exactly right in your call for negotiation. Indeed, this is the purpose of direct action. Nonviolent direct action seeks to create such a crisis. Whoa! Did you catch that? Seeks to create such a crisis and establish such creative tension. Wow, he's just mentioned two words that usually don't give me a good feeling. Crisis and tension. That a community that has consistently refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. He now has to defend the, the admission here that their goal is, yes, to create tension. Not violence, but tension. Uh, why? I thought the whole point was to produce community. Uh, everybody get along. Uh, why would you want to create tension? That seems that would be the opposite of what you want. Okay. All right, uh, but but why do you? I thought they wanted a change of laws and a change of hearts. How does tension get you there? Doesn't that seem counterintuitive? You'll never resolve the issue unless you start things up. <coughs> and, and you will never resolve the issue unless you, you start to address the problem. Okay, so some people, I can think of some, might be under the impression that there isn't a problem. Go ahead. Well, yeah, he, he says that he wants to create a situation so crisis-packed that it will eventually, inevitably, open the door to a negotiation. Okay. That we have to have that tension. We have to have um, a crisis in order to get some of these people to actually finally listen to us. All right, good. I want, I want us to tease this out a little more because I think uh, there's more to be said here. Useful, where it tells the body of decay and death. 
So something tense could actually produce something that relieves tension. I mean, again, counterintuitive, but uh, helpful to, to learn this. Okay, so making it front and center for them. Raymond? You need this tension to create real justice and real equality. That, that, that's what I think you're saying. That, that if there's just this static peace where you have, there's segregation there and maybe there's peace you know, between both races, it's not really real because one side is not really getting justice or equality. So that, that is somehow unfair. So that's his goal. The tension will produce a negotiation okay. that will lead to some time, that will eventually lead to justice. I want to think about this thing, this really real thing you mentioned. Um, presum presumably, if you are creating tension or facilitating tension, what was there before wasn't tense. It was actually peace. But what does King point out about the prevailing peace of Montgomery? Okay, but so up until this point, though, we haven't seen that come out yet, right? Yeah. Let, let, uh, let me point to another passage where he addresses this very specifically on page 91 in that bottom paragraph. I think for me, it's a real kicker on this question of tension. Middle of that paragraph, he says, We who engage in nonviolent direct action are not the creators of tension. Interestingly enough, notice that. When he first brings it up, he says, We want to create tension. Turns out, upon consideration, you know what? We didn't create the tension. Guess what? It was already there. It was already there. We merely bring to the surface the hidden tension that is already alive. Turns out they didn't produce the tension. They just brought awareness to it. We bring it out in the open where it can be seen and dealt with. Notice, if it's not in the open, does it mean it's not there? Getting back to your point, um, the tension that was there was being bared by whom, or born by whom? Blacks were. Every day they woke up, they were, be, they were experiencing these indignities, having to, through discipline, self-control, prudence, not merely react in kind. What King said is, as long as only a portion of the community, and especially a numerical minority of the community, as long as it's only a minority that's bearing the tension, bearing the weight, will it ever get addressed? You know how you want something to get addressed? Make everybody feel it. That tension's already there, and what the nonviolent protest movement does is say, let's spread it around. Only until we spread the tension around, only until whites wake up and feel the weight of that burden, will they realize, man, this is a drag. Why is that law still there? Right? That's when change will occur. So they don't create the tension. They bring it to light so that everybody knows that it's there. Everybody feels it. Guess when they conducted the boycott? It wasn't random. 
Next to Christmas, what is the time of the year you want to hit somebody in their pocketbook? Easter. Easter, right? That's when they hit. And believe me, some blacks down there didn't like the fact <laughs> that, they, that they were being asked not to buy that Easter suit for Sunday. Okay? They wanted that tension to be felt by all. It was only when all felt it. And in this case, it means the white majority. It's only when whites felt the tension that blacks feel every day will we be likely to have a situation where decent whites will do the right thing uh, to redress it. Now let me back up a second here. What about this question of uh, uh, probably the most difficult one that he has to deal with? And it's the question of breaking a law. Violating, whether it's breaking the law or violating a court order, especially a federal court order. Remember, the federal courts had been their political salvation up until this point. They couldn't trust, you know, rely on state judges and state laws to, to uh, make uh, the change they needed. It was the federal courts that, that succeeded to uh, bring an end to the boycott in Montgomery uh, that declared that uh, segregated buses or but the seating on buses was uh, unconstitutional. Um, now you have uh, King having to violate a federal court order. He thought long and hard before he did it. How do you justify this? I thought that, go ahead. An unjust law is no law at all. So you don't have to obey an unjust law. It's up to every citizen to decide, uh, you know, whatever law they think. found in the fact that there are two types of Tell us where you are, sorry. Tell us where you are. Thank you. The first full paragraph. Go ahead, sorry. The answer is found in the fact that there are two types of laws. There are just and there are unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that, quote, an unjust law is no law at all. Okay. So by violating one law of man, we do it in a way that calls attention to what? A higher law, a transcendent law. Have Americans ever done that before? Appeal to a transcendent law? Maybe, I don't know, the laws of nature and nature's God. Okay. So, in other words, it, again, great counterintuitive point here. We are going to disobey to get people to produce laws that we would all want to obey. How do you know what those laws should be? You can't appeal to earthly laws because that's precisely what you want changed. You have to go above the law. But notice, you've got to do it in a way that won't create problems. Remember Lincoln's Lyceum Address? What did he preach in that? Law-abidingness, right? He, did, he didn't want people to uh, resort to mobocracy and mob rule. Uh, what does King say to, to uh, how does King answer Lincoln? Well, you, the, you're talking about counterintuitive arguments. The argument that you uh, break these laws lovingly. Okay. Why? Why, will, why is that instrumental? Why, why do they have to and not only do it politely and kindly and out and open, not stealthily at night, where people can, why do they have to be very public about their disobedience, peaceful about it, and accept the punishment? Why is that crucial for King? To arouse the conscience of the people. Okay, to arouse the conscience of the people so people can look at it and recognize, wow, this this is really messed up, <laughs> that they're getting punished for, doing, for disobeying something that we all know in our heart of hearts is, or at least most of us, is, is an unconscionable uh, law that we're asking them to obey. What else? It leads to the moral that they will think about it and perhaps change the law in a legal sense.
Yeah, definitely. To change the law so that they can be obeying in a way that is consistent. What else? There's one other a- aspect we're missing here. It shows an extreme reverence and respect for a system of laws. A, 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 I am willing to pay this price in violating this law in order to show that I will. I reverence this law so much that I reverence the, the rule system. of law. That's right. The rule, I'm trying to say the rule of law so much that I will pay this price willingly to help you see the need to change it. Is that agape? And it does not, yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm sacrificing what? My record as a law-abiding citizen. I am going to go to jail. That's going to be on my record. I'm willing to pay that cost, the fine, the prison term. I'm paying the penalty so that you may all benefit. Okay? Now notice. And still respects has to, yeah, you have to, by breaking the law, you have to break it in a way that shows that you ought not to break laws. <laughs> Remember, because at the end of the day, what does King think? Not at the end of the day, the beginning of the day, what does King think of laws? He says, they're great. I wish, they, I, I wish I'd have a few of those protecting me, <laughs> right? So he knows this is a very ticklish subject. He knows, man, I'm telling people to break the law, but what do I want at the end of the day? I want good laws that apply equally. You can't teach your people to break laws in a way that will lead them to think that laws aren't good, that government isn't the right thing. Uh, no, the whole point is that government should be protecting everybody, right? that the common government of all should protect everyone's rights equally. And so you have to accept the punishment. That's your way of telling the community, we want to be law-abiding. That's your way of saying that the system we have set up, the rule of law, as you put it, is a good thing. That's precisely what we're fighting for. And we're going to break a law to call attention to the fact that we need a law changed so that we can all receive the benefit of the law. Okay? I think it's interesting, at the top of page 90, that he goes on to talk about the right to vote. Yeah, oh, yes. Why? That's the second component to this whole process. You know, segregation was kind of their first main goal, then the voting was going to be their second main goal. And he already brings that up as a key he brings it up uh, for that general reason, but he also brings it up for a very specific reason. Why is it that we have to break laws? Because, yeah, if the laws are made in a way where we're, our voice is neglected, either by sanction of the Constitution, sanction of state law, or even by custom, intimidation, lynching, etc., um, if we haven't been able to express our voice in these laws, this is the only avenue short of revolution that you've given us, short of violence, what other avenue do we, especially as a numerical minority, have to get the majority to change its mind? If we can't vote, you really have only allowed us this one little area to do. And if the federal government says you can't peaceably assemble, First Amendment, if you rule that one out too, what else can we do? We are backed into a corner here. Okay? You want to let us vote so that we can try to change laws that way? We'll take, we'll take you up on that whenever you're ready. Remember, Voting Rights Act doesn't happen until 65. We're a year and a half away from that, two years away from it. Go ahead. And earlier when Ken talked about, and a couple other people talked about, uh, you're appealing to people's conscience. Uh, one of the things I bring out is the fact that uh, the media, the TV, television is an important component to all this. If it wasn't for television, yep. this the consciousness wouldn't have spread throughout the country, it would have been kept in small areas and you just would, local newspapers would have covered it and then that might have been it. 
King, it, the, the civil rights movement took a while to figure that one out. Um, that the media was was a, a vital part of this. Remember when they had was it the 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 movement in Albany? Georgia, where Sheriff Pritchard said, I'm not going to be an idiot and yeah. put, you know, sick dogs on these guys and have them all in one jail where they're just like totally crowded out. And bring them. He says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to send them five here, ten there, five there, ten here. He diluted the protest. Where was the New York Times? Don't see anything happening down there. Okay, let's get back to business as usual. It had, you had to have your... Eugene Theophilus Bull Connor. Theophilus, right? Lover of God. Wonderful. <laughs> Wonderful. You needed a Bull Connor. You needed someone that you could set off like that because that's what drew the media. Uh, you see that the documentary, Eyes on the Prize. Uh, so much of that is about the video footage. And that's how people in California, New Mexico, and Montana realize, what? What year? Is my calendar wrong? This is happening here? Unbelievable. Remember this. The Civil Rights Act is passed the following year, 1964. How many black senators do you have? Don't think too long. Zero. How many black congressmen do you have? Zero. Uh, you've got a few. About a half a dozen. About a, maybe four or five. I always ask this question. I should actually figure out how many. <laughs> I never bought. I looked it up once and I just didn't write it down. But it's about at you know, five or six senators, less than ten uh, um, congressmen. There's no senator, no black senators. In other words, if you're going to get a Civil Rights Act passed, you're going to have to get a whole lot of white people to make it in there, to see it in their interests that this thing get done. Uh, you're going to get many from Alabama and Mississippi. You're going to get many from down there. To do. You had to use the federal principle, you employ the federal principle to your advantage. In other words, you didn't need to show those pictures so much in the South. That had to be telecast everywhere else in the Union so that the weight of those states, the weight of those populations would change or produce laws like the Civil Rights Act in 64, like the Voting Rights Act in 65. You couldn't wait. Blacks couldn't wait for a majority black Congress. Not going to happen. Whites had to be convinced that what was being done was un-American, unconstitutional, so that they couldn't, to their own constituents, hold their heads up by not doing anything, that they had to do something about it to redress it. And the vid video, the broadcast was crucial to it. These video clips were very influential in, since they were worldwide broadcasts. That helped as well. That's helped as well. Into, my gosh, we've got to do something. People around the world were up in arms, especially after the Children's March. And seeing the children treated that way. That's right. Good, especially the, yeah, the Soviets, yeah, yeah the, the propaganda war, absolutely. Notice, I'll answer uh, this way: uh, the modern civil rights movement didn't pop out of nowhere. In other words, blacks had been protesting for an awfully long time in various ways. Perhaps the success of the civil rights movement, the way it turned out was only capable of being done because of mass television, uh, what we mean by broadcast uh, television, uh, which is not to say that Americans couldn't have, I mean, look, we had a Civil Rights Act passed uh, uh, during the Reconstruction era. The Supreme Court ruled it unconstitutional. So in other words, 
64 wasn't the first time we thought of having a Civil Rights Act. Um, we tried to, uh, Congress tried to implement, under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, laws to prevent states from uh, infringing upon the privileges and immunities, the due process, right, uh, uh, due, the due process of law, and the equal protection of the laws uh, for citizens. Um, they've tried to do that before, but perhaps it, it actually did take a much more public exposure of what was going on in America for uh, the majority white population to do something about it. But uh, in short, blacks didn't wait till the 20th century to try to figure this out. They were doing what they can. Yeah, oh, no, I, I would say that, that it was instrumental to the victories of the modern civil rights movement, the fact that this stuff was televised. Mm -hmm. I think that there were a combination of ingredients that coalesced sure. at the same time. First of all, you had TV, and blacks were seeing on TV what they didn't have portrayed as the norm. That was one thing. And also, African Americans had come back from World War II where they had been treated better even in segregated units mm -hmm. in World War II than they were at home. And then, of course, they were integrated by the time of Korea. And then also you had leadership in the, uh, the person of Martin Luther King. Yeah, among others. There's a number, uh, Ralph Abernathy, and, yeah. Reverend Shuttlesworth, mm -hmm. uh, a number of these guys, uh, and then Diane Nash. I mean, just, I mean, the women who started that bus boycott. I'm not just talking about Rosa Parks, but the women who spent all night uh, I can't say photocopying. What was the mimeographing? I mean, just cranking those things out, hand delivering them. I mean, thousands of these things. Uh, and I'm not just talking about ground troops. I mean, these were leaders in these communities, in these churches doing this. Oh, definitely. A lot of people, a lot of streams funneling into the, 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 the river that was the civil rights movement. And we were, oh, go ahead. Well, I was just thinking that that would have been something that would have been in the background of the white people who went over there. Yeah, kind of hard to argue that Hitler's a bad guy because he's a white supremacist <laughs> when we're practicing white supremacy at home. Uh, this was what the NAACP campaigned as the double V campaign, right? Victory abroad and at home. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's right. And the kids just love the, I mean, they just point out the irony of all yep. that. So. Yep. Very good. Uh, let me make one more comment here. Ah, six minutes till 12. But I love this conversation. Um, one more point uh, from the letter of Birmingham Jail. Uh, by time 63 comes along, there is another alternative. And that we're going to get to that alternative in, the second, uh, in this last half hour. And that alternative is the alternative of the black nationalism movement represented by uh, Elijah Muhammad is the leader of the Nation of Islam and his protege, his most public face of the Nation of Islam, uh, Malcolm Little, now known as Malcolm X. Uh, King makes a reference to this other alternative and plays a little bit kind of good cop, bad cop. Here, let's look on page 93. Bottom of 92, he says, You spoke of our activity in, in Birmingham as, ex as extreme. He says, you want extreme? 
Um, he's going to talk about extreme later. He says, I don't mind being extremist because, you know, all, he mentions all these famous people who did great things like Jefferson and Lincoln, et cetera, who were extremists. But before he does that, he says, there's another group out there more extreme than what you consider us to be. Middle of the, well, probably a third way down that paragraph, he says, the other force is one of bitterness and hatred and comes perilously close to advocating violence. It is expressed in the various black nationalist groups that are springing up over the nation, the largest and best known being Elijah Muhammad's Muslim movement. This movement is nourished by the contemporary frustration over the continued existence of racial discrimination. The same thing that's nourishing our movement, right? But we've taken it a different way. What does he say to these men of the cloth? It is made up of people who have lost faith in America. In other words, the alternative avenue doesn't, is not rooted in any way, in any principles, any convictions, any structural mechanisms that are being appealed to uh, that derive from the American regime. They've lost faith in America. They've absolutely repudiated Christianity and who have concluded that the white man is an incurable devil. You can deal with us or deal with them. And right now, that them is a minority, a very small minority. I know they have a presence in Chicago, Philadelphia, New York, uh, but they're on the margins right now. But if you don't allow us this avenue of protest and respond therewith, what do you think is going to happen among blacks in this country? Blacks right now who do see themselves as American, who do just happen the vast majority, to have adopted the main religion of this country, Christianity, as their religion. So both politically and religiously, that's pretty big institutions you're talking about there. Politics and religion, our movement represents those as consistent with the mainstream of American thought and practice. If you call us extreme, there's this other cat out there, right? There's this other avenue that black frustration may more likely turn to if our demands aren't met and we're being courteous, we're being loving, we're being kind, we're being nonviolent. You can talk to us or you can deal with them. Okay? I mean, it's not even a question of you can talk to them. That's not going to work. Right? They think you are the devil. Okay? We don't think you're the devil. In fact, we think you can be better than you are. <laughs> you can be better than you've been. Uh, comments? Go ahead. Didn't the boys also say that the salvation of the white race is imperative to that change is imperative to save them too? Uh, I know Booker T. Washington said that. Said that. I mean, a number of, of, of blacks essentially said, if you know, by saving us, you do save yourselves, right? Uh, you can't, you know, when you, well, there's a number of ways that they expressed it, but Booker T. Washington had pity on uh, white Southerners, uh, white prejudiced Southerners. He, he felt sorry for them. And he actually asked, he, he was actually calling upon blacks to act in ways to redeem uh, uh, their, their white oppressors. I mean, talk about a tall order. So that made it be part of that agitation you mentioned in the long history. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, Definitely. Uh, closing comments on this letter, because we've got to move to the I Have a Dream speech. Woo. King also says, I think, in this letter that if you do not allow blacks to engage in this 
creative nonviolent protest, the only other avenue that will be is that they will have an alternative violence. Yeah, that we are the we are diplomacy. <clears throat> if not diplomacy, because the law isn't open to us, if not diplomacy, the only other avenue is violence. Yep. I, I don't think um, the larger movement after announced their nationality uh, citizenship. I think they mostly preached uh, empowerment, which uh, today, uh, they, that side is much more vindicated today than, uh, uh, I mean, I, that's what I feel, than the- uh, The emphasis the on self-empowerment. Yes, self-empowerment. That, <laughs> that, you know, what they, what they preached was the, uh, Michael Mex, uh mostly talked about that before you can negotiate, you have to be on the same level. Mm -hmm. And so you have to do all you can uh, to get yourself educated, do whatever by all means necessary, mm -hmm. get you know to that level. Then you'll be on the same uh, negotiation uh, level. Not, you know, uh, just, I say, you know, being, uh, you, you're, on, you're on this level, and then you want to negotiate with somebody else. Okay, well, we'll see, we'll, uh, we'll see what, what Malcolm X's uh, program looks like um, in, in a short while. Um, we'll, like, we'll look at this uh, interview that Louis Lomax uh, uh, conducts at the end of 1963, about the time when Malcolm X is uh, on his way out. He's not quite on his way out. He's not on his way out at all, because this is before the death of JFK and the chickens come home to roost speech that he gives that gets him into trouble. Uh, but we'll see what, what the Nation of Islam program is in a second, and then see, and we can contrast them at that, at that point. All right, I have a dream speech. Um, most famous, I think, uh, without question, most famous speech delivered in the 20th century in the United States, and next to the Gettysburg Address, uh, our, our argument has been is the most uh, famous uh, or most recognizable speech uh, in the United States. Uh, delivered at the Lincoln Memorial, right, 1963, why at the Lincoln Memorial? What uh, implicit appeal is being made here? Emancipation Proclamation, which uh, Alan Gelzo uh, likes to point out, no mention at all in the Lincoln Memorial. There's a mural at the very top that's very difficult to see because it's in disrepair um, and has a pictorially represented slaves. So there is that emancipator, but it's way up there. Uh, the Emancipation Proclamation is not quoted anywhere. You've got the Gettysburg Address on the left, Second Inaugural on the right, and then that short ode above his head that doesn't make reference to Lincoln as emancipator, but only as Lincoln as a savior of the Union, yeah, for whom, the, the people for whom he saved the Union. Uh, it was because at that time the emphasis was on unity, uh, not an emphasis upon the fact that he freed the slaves. Uh, but 63 takes you back to January 63 of 1800s, right? January 1, 1863, the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, so King goes to the nation's capital, uh, chooses the Lincoln Memorial, not the Capitol steps, uh, for this uh, great speech, uh, making a connection to Lincoln, and also point out, of course, uh, the ways in which their freedom is not quite has not quite been fulfilled. Um, uses an interesting uh, metaphor at the beginning here says, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, 
they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was the promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, why does he use the metaphor of a check, uh, a promissory note? How does this help him make his appeal to a national audience? Uh, or when they do take him up on it, what happens when they try to cash this check, he says in the next paragraph? Insufficient funds. How do you know? Uh, this is the disappointment. Um, notice the, the phrasing that he uses to describe what it is that they want. Um, I have an older version of the book that you have, and in my version it shows the pin that King had on his lapel, and on the pin it says, March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, and it has a black hand and a white hand clasping uh, together. So for Jobs and Freedom. Um, is he asking for money from Congress here? Okay, so it, when it says uh, insufficient funds, what does he really mean when he says he wants to cash this check? What is he looking to the nation for? Promise of opportunity. Okay, opportunity. What else? No, took mine. Took yours? Oh. Okay, and others? Justice. Okay, justice. Um, keeps it fairly abstract, fairly general. Next paragraph, he talks about her citizens of color. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation, and so we've come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice. Uh, no surprise that it's the following year, after, of course, JFK's uh, assassination in, in uh, November, that Congress finally succeeds in breaking the Southern filibuster and getting the Civil Rights Act passed. Uh, that is a... Uh, part of the legacy of King and of the Kennedy administration that Johnson carries out uh, to really put teeth into what I call the constitutional bite of the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments. Johnson was instrumental in getting the 57 Civil Rights Act passed when he was a senator, but it didn't have teeth. Um, it didn't really have uh, uh, much power, more, much heft to it. That happens in 64 as a result, I, I would say, in part uh, of this speech. Um, justice and opportunity. Um, we won't have time today to discuss another of the readings the, from the, the book, Why We Can't Wait, but he talks about something like reparations there, something like perhaps uh, affirmative action there, uh, and that's a useful uh, passage to have your students read in concert with this one because he published that book soon after the I Have a Dream speech. I mean, it was published in early 1964. The epigram to the Why We Can't Wait book is taken from the I Have a Dream speech, and it's the most famous quote from the I Have a Dream speech. What is that quote? I have a dream that one day my four little children. Okay, close enough. <laughs> Let's look at that. Let's look at that passage on 104. All right, 104. Very good. And this is the pivot of the speech, right? He moves from one section to another section here, and this is the section where he begins the dream motif. I still have a dream, it is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream, that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. So then, I have a dream, I have a dream, then the third one, that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. So cover or color versus content. 
Um, most people focus on the first half of this, which makes sense, right? That, that no person should be judged by outward appearance. And this was a subject that was brought up in the earlier session. Um, what's interesting, though, is that the second half is usually forgotten. King does not think we should go through life without making judgments, without being discerning, especially with regards to who we hang out with. What he is saying is, I thought that in America, kids grow up and are measured not by what they look like, but how they act, what you do. Right? That's what character is, right? a pattern representation of your soul, something that you do over and over and over again. Um, he and Coretta, of course, are confident that in the rearing of their children, when people judge them aright, in other words, when they have a proper standard, his kids will measure up. He just doesn't want the standard to be an arbitrary one, one that is based on race, which is an incidental characteristic, right? I don't want them judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Right? Character is important for him, and that he thinks is legitimate uh, to look at. Um, we're really kind of pressed here on time here. I want to just uh, throw it open here to see um, what, what, what you thought in this speech was of, of note or a question you have about this speech or, or a passage that you thought was, uh, you know, really resonated or you think would have, been, uh, would, would have been very important for majority white America to hear that might have led or helped lead to the passing of the Civil Rights Act. Yeah, he does have a speech in front of him. He's the country, particularly when he starts talking about the prodigious hilltops, and, and he, you can see his mind going across the country, and he's picking out landmarks. Has the King Foundation ever produced, you know, the handwritten manuscript? I, I haven't seen it, but I, I do know for a fact that he gave, he, he gave that riff earlier. In other words, the, especially the free at last, uh, let freedom ring, I mean, that portion... He's not ad-libbing, but he's not reading it either. In other words, it's, uh, I mean, he's a preacher, and preachers recycle, uh, professors recycle things a lot. And so that, th this is, well, I'm calling it a riff, using a musical term, but essentially it's, it's a closing uh, ode that he had used in other speeches before. And so when he looks up, I mean, he just, he's off to the races now. In other words, he knows this is going to be a real stem winder of a closer, and so even if he had it in front of him, he didn't need to look at it because he had mentioned it before. NPR, I heard in a radio broadcast where they talked about this. I even read it in a newspaper where uh, King used this uh, passage in an, another speech. It was trial tested, as it were, uh, before uh, uh, that day. It's printed in one of our books. I'm sorry? It's printed in one of the materials you sent us. The okay. Earlier speech, too. Good. Your initial question about asking what would cause, what's something in the speech that would cause to be passage of the Civil Rights Act, I would offer up the end. You know, he voice to black men, white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, he brings in a wide variety of different people and not just on two different races. Okay, and, and so he's showing that what they're asking for is something that all people can agree to, right? He, he calls it the American Creed. 
He calls it uh, citizenship rights. He uses a noun. I mean, he's a pretty smart fellow. He knows citizenship is a noun, not an adjective. But he calls it citizenship rights to, rem to remind us that when we talk of civil rights, I mean, if you ask your kids what are civil rights, they'll probably say something along the lines of, oh, that's when blacks got such and such from the government. But what does civil mean? It refers to your privileges and opportunities and rights that you have as a citizen. And so Lincoln, and Lincoln, definite Freudian slip, King, <laughs> when he says citizenship rights, he's trying to remind us that what blacks are asking for isn't a black thing. It's not a white thing. Whites have enjoyed it a lot longer, but it's an American thing. How can Americans disagree with that? I mean, that's how solid he thinks his argument is. This is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. What we are asking for, you are not giving anything away. These aren't favors. This is, and, and not only that, all we're asking for is what you promised. Now, if you can show me somewhere in the Declaration where it says that rights are uh, in here in human beings according to their race, all right, I got to make a different argument. If you could show me in the Constitution, right? If you can show me in what you have said to your own people, if you're an American, you get this. Okay? If you've shown me that that this, that this, yes, that this, is racially restricted in some way in, your, in the fundamental charters of your liberties, right? In the Declaration of the Constitution, show me where this stuff is race-based, you got me. I read, somewhere I read, right? That's another riff. Somewhere I read. Uh, but somewhere I read that all men were created equal. You told us that. I didn't make it up. Equal protection of the laws. You said that. I didn't make it up. Okay, this should not be foreign to you. And we talk about preaching to the choir. Okay? You, these are the words to your own hymns, your own political hymns. All we're saying is, you know, if you promised it, I've got a legitimate expectation that I should get it. Because I'm black? No. Because I'm American. Okay? Is there a hand up? Go ahead. Good. And, and think about that phrase, let freedom ring. How much work does that take? It takes work to prevent the freedom from ringing. Let means it's, it's very, um, just get out of the way. Right? Let it ring. Let it ring. Let it ring. Uh, and, and the great irony of ironies, right? He closes this speech, which is a speech about freedom, quoting what? A slave. He invites everybody in the nation to put themselves in the place of the black American slave. We want to be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Uh, that in a way, that is the most American of Americans, the freedman, one who was enslaved and is now free. Um, he could have said the same of the American colonists who declared their liberation from enslavement from Great Britain. Uh, instead, he chooses uh, an old Negro spiritual, the spirituals that kept hope alive among uh, black slaves as well as uh, uh, the, the newly freed men um, to emphasize uh, what was lacking, which was this freedom. Uh, all right. Um, 
closing comments or uh, observations or questions on King before we move to speedily to Malcolm X? Oh, good question. The, the, what they call the Southern strategy. I have not researched that sufficiently to know whether it was, whether it was, it was as concerted as some people uh, have claimed for it to be. Uh, for example, a guy like Richard Nixon worked very closely with uh, black political activists in North Carolina uh, to s secure um, employment opportunities in particular. Um, that doesn't strike me as the typical Republican Southern strategy, for example. But I mean, then you've got Lyndon Johnson when he signed the Civil Rights Act and the and the Voting Rights Act had said right there, he he thought he was giving away the South to the Republican Party. Um, what's that? Oh, I don't. No, quite very well. So. I don't, I don't feel competent enough to answer that question. Uh, my, my research hasn't taken me to the detail, the level of detail that public policy uh, would. But I mean, a great irony, uh, under what administration does affirmative action come into being? It's a Nixon administration. It's not a Democrat that proposed affirmative action. It's a Republican. It started in Philadelphia. Yeah, but it started in Philadelphia, or the Philadelphia plan. Uh, I think we gave you a, uh, an excerpt from that book. Uh, by Hugh Davis Graham. Uh, so I think uh, there are some significant uh, wrinkles in that uh, argument, but I, uh, I, I, I haven't researched it enough to answer better than that. All right, let's look at uh, the, let's first look at the Louis Lomax interview. The trouble with uh, teaching Malcolm X is there's almost nothing published in book form with respect to the speeches he delivered as a member of the Nation of Islam. The most famous book, the one that is used on most college campuses is this one, Malcolm X Speaks. The problem with this book is the vast majority of the words here are from Malcolm when he was on his way out of the movement or completely out of the movement. Um, the only one which is not is uh, the first one, Message to the Grassroots. And that's why I include this uh, interview that Louis Lomax uh, conducts with Malcolm. And even that interview is late in November. Okay? Uh, I, I wish there was a book that had a number of speeches that Malcolm X gave in 62, 61, 60, 59, uh, when, when he was on the rise and when he was on his way up. Uh, there's a documentary that uh, Mike Wallace produced as a reporter called The Hate That Hate Produced. I don't know if any of you are familiar with that. Uh, I think the Eyes on the Prize series, or uh, if not that, some other uh, documentary shows some snippets from that. There's actually footage, not just of, of, of Malcolm X, obviously, and Elijah Muhammad, but footage of Louis X, otherwise known as Louis Farrakhan. Um, uh, they called him before then Calypso Louis. Uh, he was a singer and musician, but there's, there's, uh, there's some rare footage of Louis Farrakhan in this one. Uh, so people knew who Malcolm X was. Uh, but it's unfortunate that students don't have uh, something that's more readily available that will show them what uh, X was actually preaching uh, as the chief spokesperson of the uh, Nation of Islam. Uh, what page do we have that uh, interview? It's, all right, very good. 
a summing up. And this is from a book entitled When the Word is Given. Uh, that book is out of print, but some libraries carry it. Um, boy, how do, how do we jump into Malcolm X? Uh, what is the nation of Islam worldview or philosophy with regards to the races, whites and blacks on earth? Elijah Muhammad is a prophet that has uh, been sent down after Muhammad, um, and his goal is to um, rise up again the black race to bring them back to where they were supposed to be as, as created by this black scientist thousands of years ago. So, okay. So um, what, what, is, what is the Nation of Islam opinion of white people? Do they have an opinion of white people? Okay. Yeah, this is not, by the way, just rhetorical gloss. I mean, Malcolm X repeatedly makes this statement. The white man is the devil. Now, if you believed that your enemy was the devil, will nonviolent protest movement work? <laughs> In other words, can you redeem old scratch? I mean... run away like Malcolm X says. That'd be nonviolent, I suppose. Okay. <laughs> See, I, I, I asked that, and, and to make this point, um, not to mock the theology, but to show you why it just is a non-starter for the Nation of Islam, uh, the, the king's philosophy just does not make sense. You can't convert a snake. Right? A snake is a snake. It's, it's, its nature is to bite. Okay? It's silly to try non-violent methods with a devilish entity. That's just stupid. Okay. What is the prediction that Malcolm is making in this address that he receives from Elijah Muhammad? What is, going, what is happening in the United States and what is going to happen that leads them to adopt the, the, the programs that they do? The white race is going to be annihilated. All right. God's judgment is coming. Right? This is a Jeremiah of sorts. It's an interview, so it's not quite a Jeremiah. It's not a you know, speech or a sermon. But it's a Jeremiah of sorts. In other words, here's a prediction that God's judgment, God's chastisement is coming. It's coming for whites. Their time is coming up. If that is true, if God is going to judge whites, hmm, should integration be a goal for blacks in the United States? No. Uh, you know the great statement? Right? You don't integrate with a sinking ship. Right? You leave a sinking ship so that you don't sink. Okay? That's why you don't, blacks shouldn't marry white people. That's why blacks shouldn't hang out with white people. That's why blacks should have a separate nation. nation. That's the idea. The more we become a part of the white system, socially, uh, in, in terms of employment, in terms of education, uh, politically, this is why... I mean, the more you do that, the more you become interwoven with people with targets on their back, right? It just doesn't make sense to do that. If God's judgment really is coming, you want to stay away from the judgment, not get as close as possible to it. You don't integrate with the sinking ship. This is why they started their own 
uh, getting to your empowerment point. One of the reasons why they emphasize that, um, they started speaking their own language, which they claim to be Arabic, okay? not the white man's language, English. They gave themselves their own names or used X to represent their unknown name. They don't like the fact that they, like Malcolm Little. Little is a master's name. That's the name uh, my forebears master gave them. I don't know. That's not who I am. The question of identity is huge for the Nation of Islam, and you see that in this interview. Um, first thing he has to do, Elijah Muhammad has to do, is reconstruct the American Negro. Because what they've been taught, their religion, Christianity, is a foreign religion to them. It is a religion, it's almost Marxist in its view, it's a religion that is used to drug blacks. Right, it's like the opiate of the masses, right? Religion is used for the benefit of their whites, not the benefit of blacks. So the religion is foreign, their language is foreign. Um, we have, so have to, we have to give them a new religion. We have to give them a new language. We have to, give them, we have to reconstruct them. And that's why he refers to them as ex-slaves. He wants to never let them forget what whites have done to them. He, now, he wants them never to forget the character of the people we're dealing with. This is why we've got to get away from them. I think it's more now openly, or more Muslims are, are becoming more accepting of the nation of Islam, but they, yeah. the Orthodox Muslims reject the nation of Islam. Uh, I have a theory about this, that um, Malcolm X, um, it's clear Malcolm X, I mean, he eventually, when he leaves the nation of Islam, he actually becomes an Orthodox uh, Sunni Muslim. Right. Um, he adopts a new name, El Hajj Amalika uh, Shabazz. Um, he makes a number of pilgrimages to Mecca, and gets to know um, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Muslims, no longer blonde-haired, blue-eyed devils. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and my theory is this, um, that his hope was that when Elijah Muhammad passed on, and he was one of these guys that was suffering from a disease where he could kill over any moment, but good night, the guy just never would, <laughs> it never happened. <laughs> I think the idea was that M Malcolm saw what was going on. He saw the corruption of Elijah Muhammad, a guy who had had sexual liaisons with a number of his secretaries, etc. The guys closest to Elijah knew this, and, were, and it, was, it was starting to get out. And Malcolm knew it and was trying to figure out, by some very odd interpretations of the Old Testament, David among others, Solomon, you know, how you could have more than one wife, etc. Um, they were trying to find a way to finesse it. Uh, but my theory is that Malcolm X was trying to outlive Elijah Muhammad, which makes sense. It's Malcolm X. Malcolm was much younger. And his hope was to make the nation of Islam a truly Muslim uh, uh, faith for blacks in the United States. He would, he would push Elijah Muhammad to emphasize that aspect of the nation of Islam, after all. And uh, Muhammad was just not into it. He just... Uh, he, 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 he wouldn't follow that. So I think Malcolm's hope was that he would be able to become the head of this organization and finally make it more aligned with traditional Orthodox uh, uh, Muslim faith and not this other and theology. Elijah Muhammad being a prophet after Muhammad would go against the very basis of Islam where Muhammad is the last prophet. That's right. Well, what, what's the, the, the 
standard phrase is, is it like, God, our God is Allah and Muhammad is his prophet or something? I know I balderize. He's the prophet of Allah. Yeah, so, and he's the prophet. They recognize a number of other prophets. They recognize Jesus for that matter, but, yeah. Uh, the, just to sum up this, this one point, just right in the middle there, wouldn't you say the Negro has a nation? America. Sir, how can a Negro say America is his nation? He was brought here in chains. He was put in slavery and worked like a mule for 300 years. He was separated from his land, his culture, his God, his language. Okay. Um, so not a recognition that a black individual in the United States could choose what his religion would be. It could be Christianity, it could be something else. Know that he has a religion, he has a language, he has a land, he has a culture. These aren't things that are uh, subject to individual choice, as it were. Look at how deep uh, this is rooted in who you are. Uh, that race isn't just uh, skin deep. It goes deeper uh, than that. Deep, deep, <coughs> as deep as uh, culture. Almost uh, along the lines of uh, Marcus Garvey or Du Bois, right? Trying to conserve the racial element. Go ahead. I would say that the best way to do it is, just in short, but I'll, I'll, we can have this conversation later, perhaps even tonight after dinner, but um, the best way to do it is, I think, the way we've laid it out, which is to say, have them read X alongside King, alongside Garvey. I mean, have them read this stuff for themselves. Uh, I mean, it, it has a high level of plausibility to it, right? In the second page, he, Lomax goes, look, I've heard it a thousand times, but it always jolts me when you say it. Why do you call the white man a devil? That's what he is. What do you want me to call him? A saint? <laughs> anybody who rapes and plunders and enslaves and steals and drops hell bombs on people, anybody who does these things is nothing but a devil. I mean, what, what you get your students to consider is to raise the question, what should the proper view of blacks towards whites be if history looks like that? Now, is that true about American history? All whites have acted in a devilish way towards black. No, we have other people. I mean, good grief. If anybody knows the oppression that can be visited upon a black in the United States, I'd say Frederick Douglass and Booker T. Washington would know. They were both born in slavery. Uh, so you see different approaches. I mean, even before Fred Douglass, and actually during Fred Douglass, you have arguments for colonization or emigration away from the United States precisely about, because of the things that Malcolm X brings up. So what I think is most useful is to show your kids 
that there isn't a monolithic thing called black American thought. That among blacks themselves, there was this ongoing debate about what to do with regards to a people who profess one thing and practice another. Their fundamental documents say one thing and their practice falls short. There's these gaps, etc. And to see how the various uh, reactions to that played out. Is Frederick Douglass's approach the right approach? Or is it Augustus Washington who, who preached immigration? Is it Booker T. Washington's approach of trying to, to accommodate themselves to certain political realities, social realities in the South, but pushing for gains in other avenues? Or is Du Bois, uh, does he pr provide a more robust program? Marcus Garvey, right, planting the seeds that we see come to bloom in the Nation of Islam. Uh, contrary to uh, Martin Luther King's approach and how they, what their various um, uh, views are of the American regime, the American founding, what it means to be an American and, and therewith what's the most prudent way to try to accomplish uh, their objectives. I'd say don't tell them, offer them the stuff to read. If they can't handle the whole thing, give them you know, salient excerpts. But I, I would say let them read and then have the discussion. Uh, otherwise, then you're just going to get, well, I saw him out in the movie Malcolm X and da 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 da, da and by any means necessary and, and whatnot. Um, otherwise, you're just, you're just going to get, you know, uh, whatever they happen to be feeling at the time rather than something that's actually informed. I would, I would venture to say that, that the vast majority of American citizens have never read Malcolm X. They've only heard about Malcolm X. Uh, I, I have my students read it. And then you draw your own conclusions. Um, we're out of time, but let me just say this uh, about Malcolm. Um, and what this Malcolm X uh, Speaks book does very well, especially if you look at the very end. Um, when Malcolm X leaves, uh, unfortunately, he, I mean, he's, sh he's shot to death in February of, eight, of 1965 when he's still trying to formulate a new approach to improving race relations in the United States. He goes for a more global perspective, uh, an emphasis on human rights rather than civil rights. Because as long as you preach civil rights, you're stuck within the American system. We're outnumbered. That's a non-starter for him. He thinks, let's take it to the world court. Let's take it to the UN, where the colored nations of the world, if you will, um, can, can be, their pressure can be brought to bear. Problematic for a number of reasons, but that's his approach. But he also comes to the opinion, and he repeats this, that he no longer believes that the white man is the devil. Okay? Um, he thinks you can work with whites. You should give them uh, an opportunity. Uh, to do the right thing. And so in a way he starts coming closer to King's position even though of course he doesn't come to the position of civil disobedience as a, as a, as a means for a, a, uh, acquiring their rights. But if you look at that series of interviews towards the end you'll see uh, an opening up, uh, a liberalization of his thinking about whether whites can be worked with or not uh, in the future. Alright, we're done and stuff's getting handed out.